I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. It has been a little more than three years since the COVID pandemic began. In the United States, we have lost over 1.1 million people to the pandemic, according to the CDC. 2,400 people died last week in the U.S. from the pandemic. Also last week, California surpassed 100,000 lives lost due to COVID. 22 people are still dying every day in California. More than 338,000 lives could have been saved if we had universal health care. That's according to findings published last June in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. Ann Keller, associate professor at UC Berkeley, told Scientific American that the study likely underestimates the deaths that could have been avoided through universal health care because it does not consider the lower rates of chronic disease that often accompany single-payer systems. That same study found the U.S. could have saved $105 billion in health care costs associated with hospitalizations from COVID. There have been over 103 million reported COVID cases in the U.S. An estimated 19 million adults have long COVID, according to City University of New York researchers. Among people with long COVID... 79% report having limitations to their day-to-day activities, and 27% characterize the limitations as significant. Yesterday, California ended its COVID state of emergency, and the Biden administration is ending public health emergency declarations on May 11th. Last week, we did a show about emergency food stamp benefits ending for millions of people starting today. We heard from Gabrielle, a recipient from El Paso, Texas, whose benefits are being reduced from $800 a month to $185 a month. As many as 14 million people could lose their Medicaid coverage. So on today's Your Call, we'll discuss where we are three years later and the overall state of our health care system. The United States is the only large high-income nation that does not provide universal health care to its citizens. Joining us are two guests. Dr. Bob Walker is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. He is the author of 300 articles and six books and past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine. From 2020 to 2022, Dr. Watker's tweets on COVID were viewed over 400 million times by 250,000 followers as a trusted source of information. Hi, Dr. Watker. Thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Dr. Eric Reinhardt is a political anthropologist of public health and law, a psychoanalyst and physician at Northwestern University. Dr. Reinhardt's work has appeared in a number of medical and legal journals and major media outlets. His latest op-ed in the New York Times is called Doctors Are Not Burned Out from Overwork. We Are Demoralized by Our Health System. In a recent piece he wrote for STAT, he calls for a health systems revolution, which will rescue a collapsing healthcare system and give healthcare workers a reason to believe in the value of their work. Hi, Dr. Reinhardt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to have you. So I have to say, I had to read these numbers at least five times to make sure I got them right. We're losing 2,400 people a week still because of the pandemic. In California, we're losing 22 people a day. So I just want to ask both of you, three years after the pandemic, how are you reflecting? Uh, Dr. Watker, let's start off with you. Well, it's a tricky time, uh, Rose, because it, 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 we have reached a new period of stability. Uh, it's not a great place. And as you say, the toll of COVID is very real. It's a little tricky to figure out exactly what the number of deaths is from COVID. I was just on clinical service for the last week, and I had several patients with COVID. And if they died, it probably wouldn't have been from the COVID itself. It would have been that it, it, it made their other health problems worse, but it's still if it weren't for the COVID, that they they probably wouldn't have been in the hospital. But I think what's clear is our society as a whole after three years is really exhausted and is willing to accept a level of risk that, you know, three years ago we would have said if that many people are dying every week, uh, let's still be careful. Let's be sure people are getting everything that they need in order to be to keep themselves safe. A lot of people and certainly our politicians have moved on and said they they can't uh, they can't abide by that much caution at this stage, which is uh, which is unfortunate because, as you say, the toll is still quite high. Right. 
Dr. Reinhardt, what about you? How are you reflecting? You know, throughout the pandemic, um, something that's been on my mind since March 2020 is that we have long been in a crisis, long before a new virus began to kill thousands and thousands of people each week in the U.S. And we've learned to normalize these crises so that people don't even see them. Even before COVID, it's estimated, and I think this is a quite conservative estimate, that 68,000 people per year were dying deaths simply because they couldn't afford the cost of healthcare in the U.S. In my mind, that's a crisis. But nobody was calling that a crisis. We were just calling it the American healthcare system. What we have now is a worsening of that baseline status that we've learned to accept for decades. And, you know, Dr. Walker rightly referred to a kind of fatigue that has set in. But in my view, it has less to do with popular opinion than it has to do with political will and political mobilization at the highest levels of government, but then also, you know, trickling down to to everyday people like myself who want to see changes but don't know how to achieve them. And that's in part because our efforts to push for them are constantly frustrated and neglected by people in power in, in federal and state government who are often not keen to make substantive changes because a lot of entrenched interests are invested in maintaining the status quo. Right. And, and we'll definitely talk about that throughout the show. I also just want to give the phone number out because I'd love to hear from listeners. What are your thoughts about where we are right now? When I shared numbers with friends and colleagues, they had no idea that California was still losing 22 people a day to COVID. So if you have any questions about where we are right now, if you'd like to share your reflections and then your thoughts on you know, why is it that the U.S. is still the only large high-income nation? I mean, we have a lot of answers. Dr. Reinhardt just talked about the influence of money and politics and lobbyists, but what will it take to get there? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Uh, we will also talk about equity issues today, but a basic question, Dr. Watker, Fewer and fewer people are wearing masks. Uh, fewer and fewer people are talking about COVID. What are your thoughts just about everyday life? People going out without masks, going to major events. Uh, you know, it, once in a while, I'll hear of someone say, I got COVID for the first time and it hit me so hard. Or I saw yep. someone on Twitter say, my 91-year-old dad got COVID and I'm so afraid because he's just not doing well. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's, it, first of all, the fatigue is natural. I mean, it, 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 people, you can only be careful and super careful and super vigilant for so long. And after a while, it does get hard to maintain it. And that's true in everything we do in life. So there, there's, there's some of it that is natural. It is true that some of it is rational, meaning that the chances, if you all of your vaccines and you're really up to date with your vaccines, which to me means you've gotten five shots by now, the chances that you're going to die of COVID are very, very low. In the beginning, when people said COVID's like the flu, uh, that was a lie in to try to minimize COVID. Today, that actually is true in terms of the risk of dying of a case. Um, I think today, all of us have to try to calibrate how careful is do we want to and need to be against the true risks. And the risks are complicated. It's no longer, uh, speaking for myself, so I'm a healthy 65-year-old guy who's gotten five shots. I no longer worry about dying of COVID the way I did in March 2020. But I still don't want to get it. I still haven't gotten it. And the reason I don't want to get it is mostly long COVID. We know that if people get COVID, there's probably about a 1 in 20 or so chance that they will have consistent symptoms lasting for many months. My wife has a version of that. It's not pleasant. She's still quite fatigued, has a little bit of brain fog a year later. Wow. And there's also decent uh, evidence that the chances that over a long period of time, you've elevated your risk of things like strokes and heart attacks from your case of COVID is very real. So our population has a lot of immunity, both from vaccines and from their infections. Their risk of dying is lower than it was. It's not unreasonable to, to loosen up your precautions a little bit. But things like wearing a mask when you go on an airplane or in public transit, wearing a mask in crowded places, I think those are still reasonable precautions to take. But everybody's got to choose for themselves. We, we certainly are not going to go back to the days where masks are mandated for people. And, you know, which I completely understand three years into it. It's hard to continue to maintain that much vigilance. I'm sorry to hear about your wife. If you don't mind me asking, 
How is she being treated? Because there was a story in the Washington Post a couple days ago about a condition called POTS, which arose after COVID. This is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system that causes rapid heart rate, fainting, and dizziness. And according to this piece, once people are diagnosed, they're facing waiting lists as long as two years to get treatment. Well, I think she doesn't have that version of it. She mostly has fatigue and and, and a little bit of fogginess in her thinking. And and it's all gotten better in the, and from the literature, it looks like the natural history is many people will get better over time. So when you look at people who have continued symptoms three or four months, when you look at them a year later, uh, a decent proportion of them are better than they were. And she's better than she was six or eight months ago. The problem is there is absolutely no treatment has been proven to work for long COVID. A lot of things are tried. And I think the key thing is to go see a, a, a physician who understands the syndrome and is compassionate and, and trying to then treat the symptoms. And there are specific treatments, for example, for POTS that for some people work. But this is an area we've got to do a lot of research in because millions and millions of people have long COVID. And at this point, we don't fully understand what's going on in many of them. There are probably different things that are going on in different people's cases. And we don't really have a good handle on the best treatments, unfortunately. Mm. And Dr. Reinhardt, given the pieces that you've written lately, what really stands out about where we are right now in terms of, you know, a lot of people are just not talking about this anymore. And then we're going to lose a lot of the measures that were in place at the state and federal level. And there was a piece in Cal Matters. And Kristen Huang writes, the message to the public is clear. Go see a doctor for your COVID-19 needs. The problem is so many people working at the community level who were doing so much outreach during COVID said, well, where does that leave us? Because the money is drying up, drying up. So how do we reach these difficult to reach communities? Yeah, I mean, that general sentiment, I think, is symptomatic of the U.S. healthcare system and what's disease inside of it, which is that we defer everything to doctors, to hospitals, to clinical care. But the fact is health has to be built from the ground up, from communities up. And if we're simply saying, you know, to each your own, you make your own choices, we're not going to invest in preventative systems, just go see your doctor. That's a recipe for the failure that we've seen in the U.S. health system for decades. And now it's going to be worse. It already is worse with COVID. In my view, none of these responses are are natural. There's no natural response, social response, political response to an epidemic. Those responses that we have are always structured by politics, by political struggle, by political economic conditions, by vested interests. Oh, did we lose Dr. Reinhardt? Are you still there? Dr. Watker, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. I think we just lost Dr. Reinhardt. We'll connect with him again. You, you know, to this point, Dr. Watker, Cal Matters reports that though the state of California poured billions into COVID emergency response and economic relief efforts, much of which did focus on equity, many underserved communities are ending the pandemic in the same way they started with an acute awareness of unmet need. So what are your thoughts on this and what can we do about this? Yeah, I personally think that the equity story is a is a positive story for COVID. I think the fact that COVID hit in an era when we were thinking much more about health equity meant that there was a lot of focus from the very beginning on on getting to underserved communities. And I see in San Francisco, for example, my institution, UCSF, in partnership with the city and county uh, of San Francisco Department of Public Health, and very importantly, in partnership with the community, uh, came together for testing programs, vaccination programs. And so there, there clearly were differences in COVID rates and outcomes uh, 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 that demonstrated the challenges we have in health equity in American healthcare. But I think they were mitigated quite a bit by a lot of intentionality and a lot of programs that said, if we're not careful here, we're going to see major differences in equity, the way we see in the treatment of blood pressure, diabetes, or cancer. Let's see what we can do. I think what Dr. Reinhardt is saying, which I think is, is, is quite appropriate, is, okay, we put in these sort of special resources to mitigate the problems of equity in COVID, but as those resources get pulled away and we begin to treat COVID like we treat everything else, then what will emerge are major differences in the outcomes and the treatments that we have available 
for people of color or poor communities? And is it can we have we learned something from COVID that can try to have us be a better place and a better healthcare system? And the answer, of course, is we hope so. But a lot of these were kind of special programs that were built for COVID itself. And as we move out of this state of emergency and move back toward the regular healthcare system, the regular healthcare system isn't very good with equity, leaves a lot of people underserved, uninsured, don't have access to care. And that has real consequences. And we'll have it with COVID and we'll have it, of course, with everything else. Right. I think what was so effective about this Cal Matters piece, and we'll definitely do a show about this, is there are incredible people working on the ground, trying to educate their communities, trying to get care to their communities. And they said that money went a long way. And now they're so concerned because it's ending. And they wonder, how are we going to continue these relationships without the funding? Yes, and it is, a, it is a real concern. I mean, on very practical level, you know, COVID is still around. It's, it, the, the, the risk is lower than it was, but it's still around. And will people have access to vaccines? Will people have access to testing? And will people have access to Paxlovid, which is the medicine that markedly lowers the risk of death and hospitalization and also lowers the risk to some extent of long COVID? And, you know, we're moving to a stage where COVID is probably going to be treated like everything else. It'll be another disease, which means if you've got good health insurance, you probably will have access to all those things. And if you don't have good health insurance, you don't have any health insurance, then you will have less access to those things. And, you know, society makes choices about how it spends money. And unfortunately, in the American healthcare system, uh, the choices that we make create a very, very inequitable system that has real consequences. And with COVID, it's a little different. You know, for other diseases, the you know we talk about if we can't treat your diabetes or your blood pressure or your heart disease or your cancer, uh, well, the consequences really are just for you, and that's tragic enough. In COVID, because it's an infectious disease, it's not just about you. If you get COVID and you don't have access to testing or treatments then there's a decent chance you'll spread it to other people. And so it's, it's, it's much more of a communal thing than as we think about equity and the rest of healthcare system, which is more about the impact on the individual. Exactly. And to that point, the state of California will no longer support mass testing and vaccination sites due to a lack of demand and growing availability through pharmacies and healthcare providers, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. So for people who do not have access to a doctor um, or a hospital, what recommendations would you make for people who might think that they are sick and want to know if they have COVID? Yeah, I think we're back. We're going to be back to the usual healthcare system, which is, you know, in, in certain cities like in San Francisco, the city and county makes available working with UCSF uh, free clinics and and um, and through San Francisco General, there is access to some level of care um, uh, for people who don't have the resources and don't have insurance. But that is patchy. And obviously, it's not a perfect system and it's not super well funded. And there are other parts of the state where those sort of things aren't available. If you have no insurance or you have Medi-Cal, you just can't find a primary care doctor. So if you're, you know, if you're sick, you're just going to have to guess whether it's COVID or not. And and potentially uh, and, and probably not have access to therapy that will make you better sooner and lower the chance that you're going to infect other people. It's obviously a real problem. And, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years is the value of a system that uh, builds in programs that are specifically focused on issues of equity. And again, I think I see COVID as being a little bit of a success story in that regard. And we're going to go back to the usual system and the usual system is quite inequitable as it pertains to uh, how we deal with people who don't have health insurance and don't have means. Right. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is separate from Kaiser Permanente, in 2021, 27.5 million non-elderly individuals were uninsured. 64% of uninsured adults said that they were uninsured because the cost of the coverage was too high. Today, we are talking about where we are three years after the pandemic began. We are still losing 2,400 people every week in the United States and 22 are dying every day in California. California ended its COVID state of emergency yesterday, and the federal government is ending emergency declarations on May 11th. Dr. Bob Watker is professor and chair 
of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and we're hoping to reconnect with Dr. Eric Reinhardt soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can give us a call, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. We have a number of people on the line. Let's go to Greg in Palo Alto. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. I hope you can hear me because the line is very fuzzy. Um, First of all, I'm uh, almost 80 and I'm disabled, and I will continue to wear a mask uh, if I go out into a public setting, especially indoors. Um, And I think anybody my age, maybe in their 70s, would be... um, uh, well uh, done to uh, continue to wear a mask. I would like to say that you know this points out that the colossal failure of our government and the political system and even the public health system. Over a million people died in this country. We have more cases than any other country in the world. And here we are still having uh, thousands of people dying and people are lifting the directives. It would seem to me that it would be wise to continue to do this. And by the way, this is not the only pandemic we're going to experience. There's going to be things coming down the pike, and I'm hoping we're going to be better prepared. But given our, our health care system, I doubt that. But I hope people are more on top of this. And I think it's criminal that the state of California is not going to continue to provide care to people who really need it, the older people, uh, low-income people, uh, you name it, people at higher risk. So I just caution people, uh, you know, there's too many people still dying. Don't don't uh, think that this is over. Thank right. you. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Dr. Watker, every company, every place of work is embracing different policies. Some are saying, you know, please wear a mask if someone asks you to wear a mask. Some are still asking for proof of vaccination. Some are not. It's just a patchwork out there. What would you say to people who are uncomfortable with the policies in their place of work or where they spend a lot of time? Yeah. And I should say, Rose, my last name is pronounced Wachter. I'm I'm sorry. Thank you. Wachter. Thank you. Um, So, um, yes, it's confusing. It is a patchwork. I'll tell you the thing I worry about most for the next pandemic is I, I, I worry about coverage for medicines and treatments and testing, all that kind of stuff. The biggest worry that I have three years into this is uh, is misinformation and the fact that uh, people can be, uh, uh, you know, online or, or, or even other kinds of media and come to believe that they shouldn't get vaccinated or come to believe that masks don't work. And they think they're acting rationally by not getting vaccinated, not wearing masks, not taking packs of it. All of those things are demonstrably wrong. All of those things put them at significantly higher risk of getting sick, of dying, of infecting other people and of getting long COVID. So I worry about a lot of this, but that's the thing that I I think that's the biggest lesson learned out of the last three years, that we now have amazing tools that can keep people safe, both from getting COVID and from getting sick from COVID. And a huge number of people are choosing not to use them in part because they have been fed information that is simply scientifically wrong. Um, The guidance is going to be confusing because it's a confusing space. You know, should you wear a mask? I think at this point, it really is up to individuals to say, how much risk am I willing to take? That has to do with your own risk tolerance. It has to do with your own risk factors. Obviously, if you're older or you're immunocompromised, you should be more careful than a younger, healthier person. But even for a young, healthy person, their risk of getting very sick and dying is very, very, very low if they're fully vaccinated. But their risk of getting long COVID is only a little bit lower than for an older person. And so and certainly for everybody, the benefits of vaccination are really, really quite profound. So at this point, you know, I continue to where, you know, a lot of people read me on Twitter as I kind of walk through my own thinking about whether I am or am not eating in indoor restaurants. And a lot of folks say it's just too confusing. Just tell me what you're doing and I'll follow that, which is is gratifying and is one way to do it. These are hard choices. I do think it's reasonable to require masking in places where there's a lot of risk. And so, for example, obviously at UCSF, when we go and see patients, we're wearing masks. And I think we will and probably should forever. Uh, I will continue to wear a mask, I think, forever when I'm in a crowded indoor space and I have no reason to need to eat or drink, for example, flying on airplanes. I see no reason not to mask 
in those settings. For the rest of it, it's complicated, and I think individuals are going to make their own choices, and I think we are past the stage where policymakers are going to say to people, you have to wear a mask in every circumstance. Well, thanks again for the call, Greg. We're going to take a quick break. Dr. Bob Wachter is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. He is the author of 300 articles and six books and past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we are talking about where we are Three years after the COVID pandemic, we have lost over 1 million people to the pandemic. 2,400 people died last week in the United States. 22 people are still dying every day in California. Yesterday, California ended its COVID state of emergency, and the federal government is ending public health emergency declarations on May 11th. If you have any questions or comments, if you have a story to share, thoughts about what it will take to have some form of universal health coverage in this country, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. You can also, you can also email your call at KALW.org. Today we are joined by Dr. Bob Watker, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Before we get to another call, Dr. Watker, because you brought up your major concerns about all of the disinformation we saw during COVID. What concerns you about the long-term effects of that disinformation? Well, I'll tell you my, my biggest concern, I, I interviewed uh, recently a guy named Mike Osterholm, who's one of the top pandemic experts in the world. Uh, he's been studying and writing about pandemics for 30, 40 years. And I said, you know, Mike, how does it feel after writing and warning about this for years and years that we've seen the big one. And he said, this was not the big one. The big one would be an infectious agent that is as transmissible or maybe more so than COVID, but is far more deadly. And it's not that hard to imagine. So that's what concerns me, that this is probably not the last one we'll see. Who knows when the next one will be? It could be a few years. It could be 50 years. We don't know but that the uh, misinformation sort of ecosystem and machine has kind of learned a set of strategies to get information out to people that is confusing or misleading. And for whatever reason, I think in some cases it's for money, in some cases it's for some reason they, they, they feel this is a good thing to do. And there are things in COVID uh, that are confusing. Then the science changes and we learn more as we go along, but there are things that are really pretty unambiguous. Uh, but they've left a lot of people in a state of confusion and people, of course, want to move on. And if you didn't need to get a vaccine, you, why would you? And so um, uh, they've gotten pretty good at it. And of course, the media landscape is people can choose to absorb whatever information and use whatever information portals that they want. So a lot of people are being exposed to information that just is misleading. And I think it's causing them to do the wrong thing and putting them at higher risk. And when you look at the 1 million or 1.1 million people that have died of COVID, at least half of those deaths could have been prevented if people did things uh, that are, you know, easy to do, were free. Uh, And that really was, you know, getting vaccinated in the right way, um, uh, taking Paxlovid or appropriate medicines if they got if they got COVID and doing simple things like wearing a mask during times of high risk in settings of high risk. uh, and using the right kind of mask and, and, and wearing it correctly. Um, I, you know, in San Francisco, we've done pretty well in the Bay Area, where in part because there's been, I think, less in- misinformation and more trust of experts and of the system. And if the entire country mirrored San Francisco's per capita death rate, it would probably be about three quarters of a million people alive today that have died of COVID. So it can be done. And we mostly did it in the Bay Area But unfortunately, that's not the general experience in the United States. Mm. Well, we have a caller who'd like to discuss media coverage. So let's hear from John in Mill Valley. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. We have a caller who'd like to discuss media coverage. So let's hear from John in Mill Valley. Hi, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Should I turn the radio off? Yes, please. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm concerned about the media and the experts really enabling the um, perpetuation of this. It's been long known uh, in the UK that COVID actually attacks the brain, that brain fog is actually brain damage, possibly 
permanent and also other organs like the heart. There's nothing mentioned about getting COVID through the eyes, which are very exposed mucous membrane. And um, it just seems to me that um, we're killing people. And it is not brought up that way. It's brought up as like cases rather than infections. So there's a whole, the glass is half full, this desire to kind of placate people into feeling the worst is over, where we have no idea about long COVID, as the earlier person mentioned, and its effects on 17-year-olds to 40-year-olds and what they might be living with, as this is only, the new one's only like a year old or two years old. They really have no way of this. So I feel that the experts, the CDC, who and um, the media particularly are enabling this by not covering it. One football player has a near-death experience, and it's a week long on CNN, and nothing about, no interviews with the people who've lost a wife or a husband or a child to this. Mm. No personal interviews, and it's just a shame. Well, thank you for that comment, John. Uh, Dr. Watker, your thoughts? First of all, Rose, try again. It's Wachter. Um, and, and, but in terms of my thoughts, first of all, the football player having the near-death experience on air, um, and then, of course, there's a uh, people begin saying, "Oh, because he got vaccinated," which is ridiculous. It's it's completely it's completely incorrect. Uh, but this is the way misinformation works. You 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 know, if you take all of the people who are vaccinated, yes, there will be people who have break their legs and have a heart attack and have strokes in the month or two after getting vaccinated. There's absolutely no evidence that the vaccine causes any of those things. And when people tell me I'm worried about the long-term impact of the vaccine, I'm about a thousand times more worried about the long-term impact of COVID than I am of the vaccine. And all the evidence says long COVID is very real, common, and and really quite harmful in ways that I think, as the caller says, have been underemphasized by the media. Whereas the vaccine, all of the studies show that the risk of it is extraordinarily low. Um, uh, you know, very, very few people have been harmed by the vaccine and millions and millions and millions of people have benefited and many, many people's lives have been saved by it. So, yeah, I think the way the media has handled vaccination and risks has been distracting. And then there's this whole ecosystem that tries to take this and use it as fodder for misinformation. I do think long COVID has been underemphasized. It, It is easy to report on people getting COVID, getting sick in the next week and ending up on a ventilator and dying. It's a vivid story. It's understandable. The story of what happens to people a year or two and what we may see five years later is much more subtle, much more difficult to cover, uh, much harder to understand. We don't have effective treatments for it. We don't even understand it super well. And so I think it has been underemphasized but it really is very important in terms of the way you think about risk. As I said, the reason I'm still moderately careful, less than I used to be, but still moderately careful, and the, still the reason I don't want to get COVID if I can avoid it, is largely because of these long-term consequences. It really is no longer about worrying that I'm going to get really sick and need to go to the hospital and might die of it acutely. What kind of research is being done on long COVID? There are just so many articles out there. Just yesterday, MedPage Today had a piece called Evaluating and Treating Children with Long COVID. Yeah, the federal government is investing billions in trying to uh, do research and understand it better. I think we've started even from the beginning in, 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 in people with long COVID. They probably uh, there are many different underlying mechanisms for it. So there are some cases that probably do uh, are, are stemming from persistent small amounts of virus and the treatments might be stronger or longer treatments with antivirals. There are other cases where your own immune system has gone a little haywire and continues to attack your body. They may need immune suppressive drugs. There are other cases where your clotting system has gone a little bit off the rails and they may need blood thinners. And the problem is in any individual patient, there's no good way, easy way for a doctor to tell which one it is. And for researchers, we kind of have to figure out what kind of long COVID you have before we can understand what might work best and then do a clinical trial to figure it out. So there's a lot of research into it, but it's not yet at the stage where we're really well positioned to understand what's going on and how best to treat it. 
but we better focus on it. We better uh, invest in this research because we're talking about tens of millions of people. This will be the long tail of COVID. Even after COVID becomes less of an acute threat to our people and our society, this is going to be a huge burden on society and on the individuals that have it. We have another question about long COVID. Let's go to Lisa in Oakland. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, um, so I have uh, multiple ME-CFS chronic fatigue syndrome, and I've had it for 20 years. And so I'm at, the, and that makes me more at risk of getting long COVID. And I'm at the gym right now, and I am like the only one wearing a mask. Hmm. And it's, I just want to say that while I really appreciate all the uh, studies that are going on around long COVID, it's been over 20 years before uh, chronic fatigue syndrome got $5 million last year towards research by the NIH. So, and what I've heard from Stanford, where I go, the chronic fatigue clinic, they said that the research going into long COVID can't also be, you know, they can't put in for both ME, CFS, and long COVID, even though there are great overlaps. For instance, Epstein-Barr reactivation, which I have, they're finding that people of long COVID are getting Epstein-Barr reactivation, which is what Stanford believes is the underlying cause of a lot of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. So I just want to put it out there. The A, I think we're taking the mask off too soon. And B, we need to increase the overlap studies between long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, well, thank you, Lisa. We should definitely do a show about chronic fatigue syndrome. Dr. Watker, your comments? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, COVID and long COVID are not the first long-term manifestation of infections. And as Lisa says that she's suffering from, from, from one of them that we don't understand very well. I'm, I guess I'm a little more hopeful that unfortunately we have not invested what we need to better understand what she has. I do think the billions of dollars are being invested in understanding long COVID better will ultimately lead to a better understanding in general of these long-term uh, symptoms that people have with other kinds of infections. And I think they will pave the way for better uh, better tests and better treatments for them. We'll have to see. In terms of the mass, I think these days, uh, in some ways, we're on our own. Like if I want to keep myself safe uh, and I go, I'm going to the gym, I will wear a mask myself. If you wear a good mask, a KN95, and wear it correctly, the masks work quite well in keeping yourself safe, even if the others around you are not. I just don't think we're going to go back to an era where everyone is required to wear a mask. I think individuals now, if they're fully vaccinated, up to speed with their vaccines, and they're wearing a mask in given uh, risky circumstances, I think they are quite safe, although it's annoying. It would be nice if everybody else uh, was doing it as well. I just don't think we're going back there. Well, thank you for the call, Lisa. Let's go next to Tom in San Francisco. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, I think it's a big waste of time to, to welcome people and, and have them say thanks, by the way. But um, <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask whether um, COVID is spread through aerosol or through droplets, because the public is, um, is exposed in places that are empty, such as elevators or staircases, if it's spread through aerosol. But if it's spread through droplets, it's not. My best friend is a nurse practitioner who wears the mask during um, his patients, but in between he takes it off. And if it's spread through aerosols, he could still be putting himself at risk. And then um, as far as masks, it seems very vague because I, for instance, wear a PPF3, which is a higher level of protection than N95s, which is only, uh, sorry, FFP2s. And in Europe, they specify at least FFP2s. I also wear medical goggles because ACE2 receptor sites are found in the eyes. And um, I'd like to also say that I think that the media coverage on this has been sporadic as far as the type of mask. They just say wear a mask, and the cloth masks are basically uh, doing very, very little, whereas FFP3 
threes are are much safer. Well, thank you for that, Tom. Uh, Dr. Watker, comments on aerosols and then also the comment that Tom just made about masks. Yeah, the, the it's very clear. It was not clear early on, which is part part of the confusion, but as time has gone on and research has gone on, now we know that it's largely spread through aerosols, and aerosols mean very, very fine particles that can linger in the air for a while. And it also means that if you're wearing a poorly fitting mask, like a cloth mask or even a surgical mask, the kind that we often wear in hospitals, I don't, I wear a better mask than that, but people sometimes wear in hospitals, if there are gaps around where the mask connects with your face and nose, that aerosols can slip in there. If it was droplets, meaning it's it's a little piece of spittle that comes in and connects with your nose or your mouth or your eyes, for that matter, then then it wouldn't matter as much what kind of mask as any of them would catch it. But we definitely know that the better mask, the N95s or the equivalent or even better, uh, work better at cutting the amount of aerosols down. And so... When I am wearing a mask, which I do, again, in crowded indoor places, um, it's always at least a KN95. If I'm going to wear a mask, why not wear one that's really going to work? And I switch to the even better mask, so a a, a, a fitted uh, N95 or even higher, when I'm going into the room of a patient who I know has COVID. And so it's all a math issue that, yes, I think if you wore this better mask all the time, You've increased the level of safety. If you wore goggles on top of it, you increase the level of safety. Every time you walk into an empty room, you still wear a mask because you're worried that someone might have been there with COVID before. You've increased the level of safety. But it's a matter of making a choice of how safe you need to be versus also, you know, as as the masks get tighter above. I find a KN95 perfectly comfortable. But as you go to even tighter masks like the N95, it's a little less comfortable. I just to wear it eight hours in a row is hard to do. So these are all choices and they're tricky choices. And a lot of it have to do with your risk tolerance. And a lot of it has to do with your own level of risk. So if I was older or I was immunosuppressed, uh, I might be even more careful than I am now because the consequences of getting COVID would be higher than it is for a relatively healthy and younger person. We have a number of comments about masks. What are your thoughts on this from Catherine? You're encouraging me to continue wearing my mask. However, in the early days of the pandemic, I was told frequently that my wearing a mask is protection for other people and that other people being masked is protection for me. I am dismayed that I am now dependent on protection from people who are fatigued by the pandemic and are no longer interested in wearing masks because there's no sense of community protection. Yeah, it's a reasonable point. I, I think the, the the mantra early on that the masks are only about protecting others from you, that was wrong. Uh, we've now learned that you, that the masks, and there's been some misinformation and some confusing studies that have come out on this. But if you wear a good mask correctly, it is going a very long way to protecting you. It also is protecting other people around you, which is nice, but it, it is protecting you. So when I am wearing my KN95 in a crowded indoor space, it would be nice if other people around me were wearing their masks, but I don't care all that much because I feel like I have done what I need to do to stay protected. And um, and this idea that you're only protecting other people is wrong. You know, we're as a society, I think, trying to get to a world three years into this where we say to everyone, you must wear a mask all the time to protect the people around you. I just, I think that's unrealistic. I think it's not going to happen. So in many ways, we are at a stage where it'd be nice if we were more communal, but we're at a stage where you mostly have to do the things that you think are appropriate to protect yourself. While you're doing it, you are also protecting the people around you because the mask really works both ways. There's no question that wearing a good mask correctly protects the, the, the wearer. Well, thank you for the question, Catherine. Suzanne has a question. I am almost 80 with asthma and belong to Marin Health. My primary care doctor has not referred me to a long COVID clinic. Since I had COVID a year ago, I lost my hair, had skin rashes, and have terminal insomnia. I am disheartened as I cannot get any more boosters. Uh, Suzanne says that she had a horrible reaction to her second injection. Suzanne says two of my friends and one relative have serious reactions to boosters. How can I get care for long COVID? 
Yeah, it's it's hard. I think the you know there are there are not that many long COVID clinics uh, out there. Um, they're difficult to establish uh, financially. They they are not uh, winners for healthcare systems that that put them together. Uh, UCSF has one, but it is relatively small and mostly focused on people who were previously hospitalized. Um, I think that there's going to have to be. Uh, federal funding or state funding to establish these clinics and support them. I think the need is quite real. As she says, you know, she's got a very complex illness that her primary care doctor, it sounds like it's not perfectly comfortable providing all of the things that she needs. Um, and yeah, I think it's I think it's a real problem. I think we're talking about, you know, tens of millions of people suffering from this syndrome with the healthcare system really not being able to respond adequately to their needs. Of course, you know, as we have more effective therapies and better tests and treatment, I think this will this will change. But at this point, uh, it's hard to know what to recommend. I, you know, it'd be nice if the primary care doctor took it on and did everything he or she could to try to make you feel better. But um, I think there still is really a paucity of of practices focused on the needs of patients like her. Are we still going to need a vaccine every year? I think so. Um, I, I think the evidence would say that the having a booster markedly improves your protection against getting very sick and dying, moderately improves your protection against getting long COVID, and protects you for a few months but not long-lasting against getting COVID itself. So the main reason to get uh, to get a booster is that it really tremendously ups your your protection against getting very, very sick. And so for um, now, you might say, how about having an infection? An infection does that too. And the data are quite clear that the protection you get from your infection is probably about as good as the protection you get from your booster. But you'd much, much rather get your protection from a, from a booster than from an infection. Some people say, well, I got infected. I'm, you know, I'm over it. I don't have to worry about the next one. That's not right because there's very clear evidence that each infection is as risky to you, both in terms of your acute uh, problems, but also in terms of long COVID. Each infection is as risky as, as the one before it. So, for example, my wife, who has had COVID, and as I said, has a, a, a mild version of long COVID, she is as careful now trying to avoid getting her second infection as I am trying to avoid getting my first. And that's rational because the risk of of it to each of us is about is about the same. I think that that uh, getting more frequent boosters than every year is probably not necessary. It, it the, the the government is still debating that whether after six months your protection has waned sufficiently that for very high risk people they should get a booster every six months. For now, the recommendation is going to be a yearly shot, just like you get a yearly flu shot, and the yearly shot will be rejiggered and reformulated each year because COVID keeps doing its, uh, its shape-shifting and, and, its, and there are different variants. So the value of getting a shot each year will not only be to up your immunity, but that the shot you get will be better tailored against the type of COVID that's in the environment versus what was around last year. In terms of costs, as long as federally purchased vaccines last, COVID vaccines will remain free to all people, regardless of insurance coverage, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, there were a lot of headlines about Moderna announcing plans to increase their vaccine from 110 to $130 per dose. Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren has been talking about this. And when they were asked to sit in front of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pension Committee to answer questions about this, they said, OK, we're actually going to still offer these vaccines free of charge. How do you see this playing out in the future? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's it's an interesting and important question. Uh, we may very well find ourselves in an environment where vaccines are covered under all health insurance, that that's part of the mandate for for insurers to cover all preventative care, including vaccines, which is required under the ACA. The question then is, what about people who don't have health insurance? And if they have to pay, you know, 150 bucks a pop for a vaccine, I fear that a lot of people will not get the vaccines that really are beneficial to them. And so we've got to look to see, uh, 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 you know, whether they will be funded by by governmental entities, whether it's state or federal. And I think it's also perfectly reasonable to be putting pressure on both Pfizer and Moderna to recognize that they made a tremendous amount of money because of federal support 
for their vaccines, not only during the research phase, but also what's happened over the past three years with the amount of money that the Fed spent giving them uh, support to both develop and then sell their vaccines. So I know the White House is pushing very hard on these companies to be reasonable as they think about the cost, as they think about how they price these vaccines. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. Dr. Bob Watker. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Watker. I'm having a hard time with your name. I, I got to say, I'm having a tough time with the show because I lost my aunt to COVID and I'm just thinking oh, I'm about so that a lot. So I'm, I apologize for um, botching your name, Dr. Watker. Thank you. Is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and you can find his Twitter handle at yourcallradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I hope you can join us tomorrow where you will be joined by sociologist Dorothy Roberts. She'll discuss her new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. We will also talk about the big money behind the Supreme Court case that could kill student debt relief. Thanks to B. Saul for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 